Whilst I was over in Lincolnshire recently, I paid a visit to East Kirkby, home to uh, Lynx Aviation Heritage Centre. For the uninitiated amongst you, there is uh, a famous World War II bomber based here, and I thought uh, we'd begin with a test for all of you aviation nuts out there. So, see if you can, one, identify the engine noise that you're about to hear, and two, what aircraft does it belong to? really easy one, eh? That's the sound of the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine starting up on uh, Lincolnshire Aviation Heritage Centre's Lancaster Bomber, Just Jane. I was lucky enough to have taken a taxi ride here a few years ago and I thought I'd uh, pay them another visit for the podcast. So, for episode 42 of Flying Podcast, I'm talking to Andrew Panton, who runs the centre, and my first task was to ask Andrew what the museum was all about. Well, the centre was originally set up as a memorial to uh, flying pilot officer Christopher Panton, who flew Halifaxes in Bomber Command in the Second World War. It's kind of then grown to a uh, a national memorial, I guess, to Bomber Command and uh, all the crews that flew in it. Um, we currently have uh, a Lancaster here. It's set up on an original World War Two airfield, so we have the original control tower all refurbished and set up as it was, um, a hangar on original hangar base and several other original buildings here as well. So it's grown into a, quite a large Bomber Command museum now. OK, you're based in East Kirkby? That's it. What which was RAF East Kirkby, yes. OK, which is probably, what, about halfway in between Lincoln and Boston, would you say? Yeah, yeah, not far. It's um, about half an hour off the, the east coast, Lincolnshire. How did the museum come into being? Well, Fred and Harold Panton uh, had a brother flying, as I said, on Halifaxes in the war. Um, he was shot down on the Nuremberg raid, 30th, 31st of March, uh, 1944. Uh, because of that, they set up um, a memorial to him. The only aircraft they could get at the time was a Lancaster. Um, they would have ideally liked a Halifax because of the, the meaning of the Halifax. Um, so they bought the Lancaster, bought the airfield site here, and were originally going to keep it just as like a personal memorial, a family memorial. Um, and just come and have a look at Lancaster when they wanted to. Yeah. Uh, but it then grew and grew. People wanted to come and see the aircraft. And so uh, the Aviation Centre has been set up for... It was set up in 1988, it opened. So it's been going for 23 years now. OK. And the sort of broad aims of the museum now? It's really, um, as I said, a memorial. It's uh, to remember those that, that gave their lives in Bomber Command and also those that returned as well. Um, it's something that we're quite passionate about, not letting it be forgotten. And um, really the aims is to educate people um, about Bomber Command and what it did. There's what, about 55,000 died, was there, in Bomber Command? Yeah, 55,500. Um, to put that in some kind of perspective, if one walked past you every second, it would take over 15 and a half hours for the entire losses to go past. Wow. And that's just in, in the wartime period. OK, so you mentioned the Lancaster. What other aircraft do you have? So we've got the Lancaster NX611, which is a Mark VII Lancaster. We've also currently got with us a Dakota, which is N473DC. Um, that's based here for winter maintenance and, and stays here for quite a lot of the summer period as well when it's not flying. We've also got a couple of restorations with a Percival Proctor and a Handley Page Hamden as well. Okay. Um, what other attractions do you have? You mentioned you had a, a control tower. What else is going on here? Yeah, so we're, we're almost trying to set it up back as it was during the wartime. So we've got the, the large hangar here, 120 feet by 240 feet, 
that obviously houses the hangar and the Dakota. We've also got a lot of wartime vehicles, so we've got the only crew bus in existence, um, a Watt 1 fire engine, several other uh, wartime bomber command um, aircraft tenders and, and vehicles that really serviced a bomber command station. We've also got the control tower, as we said, set up to wartime conditions, um, all mannequins in, set up like it's just before a raid to Berlin. Uh, we've also got the escape museum, which is the remnants of the RAF escaping society. So that goes through all the escape routes in Europe and what crews had to do to get back through escape lines and everything like that. Um, we then go through to early bombers, so we've got displays on Hamden's, Wellington's, Whitley's, all the early bombers before Lancaster's really took hold. And then the, the restoration projects of the Proctor and the Hamden. And then we've also got Wellington wings here as well, which were recovered from a crash site. So there's quite a few different things here, mainly centred around Bomber Command. Okay. And the Lancaster and the Dakota, they're not just static displays here, are they? No, the Dakota's airworthy, it flies, um, and the Lancaster taxis, so it's got all four engines running, and you go for taxi rides in it. And that's one of the key sort of attractions here is the taxi ride in the in the Lank, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's uh, what m majority of people come for midweek. Uh, we hold events throughout the year on bank holidays as well, but the the main public attraction is, is to see the Lancaster and to see it taxi. So roughly how often do you do the taxi rides in the Lancaster? Uh, we have a season from March to November. It's usually about once a week. Okay. Uh, and where can people get details of, of that? Um, all the details are available on the website. We also have leaflets in the centre as well if you want to pop along. Okay. How can people support the Heritage Centre other than coming down and actually spending money with you? We have a supporters association for the Lancaster. Um, so you can you can support us for a year, either on a gold or a silver membership. Um, obviously, different amounts for the the different levels of membership. Um, basic membership, the silver membership, um, just gets you free entry to the museum site, gets you an annual magazine. Um, the gold is kind of a step up from that. So you get entered into a draw to have a taxi ride. You get a supporters day. You get all your free entry to all the events as well. After our introductory chat, Andrew took me for a tour of the Lancaster. You can no doubt hear from the uh, moans and groans that the fuselage interior wasn't designed for uh, an aged chap like myself crawling around with a microphone in one hand. Okay, so we're uh, inside the, uh, the fuselage of the Lancaster and we're stood just in front of the, uh, the rear gunner's position, yeah? Yeah, so this is uh, the rear turret. It's an FN82 rear turret. Um, so it's quite a later turret when Lancasters were produced. It's got 2.5 Brownings. Uh, the turret is, is kind of cocooned to itself. There's two sets of doors that separate it from the rest of the uh, the crew on board the aircraft. His parachute itself is just stowed just outside of the turret, back inside the fuselage. Inside the turret, temperatures are down to about minus 30, minus 40 degrees centigrade. There's 2,000 rounds for each gun, so you've only got about a minute's worth of fire and the life expectancy for the rear gunner is down to about 40 hours so it's extremely short they'll be flying anywhere from four and a half to ten and a half hours depending on where the target is yeah. I believe so, that bailing out was quite a, a palaver wasn't it? yeah it's not particularly easy a lot of the crews actually said the rear gunner had the easiest way to get out but he's actually got to open the black doors that close just behind his back reach back into the fuselage and grab his parachute back into the turret, clip his parachute on, rotate the turret 90 degrees, provided he's still got hydraulics, if not he's got a hand crank to have to rotate the turret with, roll out backwards, pull the parachute, and hopefully descend gracefully. <laughs> All this while you're on fire. Quite That's probably. it, yeah. 
Jeez. Not very often you bail out of a nice uh, level aircraft, is it? No. On a Lancaster, only about 2.3 out of the seven-man crew managed to survive a bailout. Those are the statistics. Gosh. So as we go back up the fuselage, just as you come through the door, the first thing you come to is a, a flare chute. You can then turn right and go up the fuselage, and the first thing you go over the top of is the H2S radar. So the H2S radar was brought out in about 1943, and it's uh, like a ground mapping radar. Yep. It's more of a, a post-production modification. Let me keep going further forwards. This is the H2S that we're climbing over now. You then step up on top of the bomb bay, and above your head is where the middle of the turret would have been. Okay. Because this aircraft was produced um, April 1945 for Tiger Force, it had a, a Martin Midipa turret in, which is an American turret, slightly heavier than the FN-20 um, or FN-150, I think it was, that was fitted to the Midipa turret of normal Mark 1s and 3s. Um, because of that, it was pushed 11 feet further forwards to be close to the centre of gravity. Um, the turret of this aircraft was taken out in the 50s by the French because it was then used for maritime reconnaissance. It never actually saw wartime service uh, for the British. It went back into... Um, back into a hangar basically and was inhibited there purely because the Americans dropped the atomic bomb and so the Lancasters never got out to the Far East. So from the Midipa turret as we go further forwards It's very, very confined isn't it? It is. You're walking over the top of the bomb bay basically now. Okay. The first thing you go over the top of then is the top of the hydraulic rams for the landing flaps. You then get to the rear spar on a Mark 7, in between the spars, we have a H2X position. So this ran the H2S and also the H2X, which is more of a, uh, a maritime radar. Okay. On a Mark 1 and 3 Lancaster, this would just have been a rest bunk. Above your heads here is the uh, escape hatch on top of the aircraft, so that goes out on top of the wings. Okay. You've got to be pretty small to get <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a ditching hatch, really, so if the aircraft ditches into the sea, you can get out the top. Okay. Further forward? Yep, the next part after this is the main spar. It's what the aircraft is famous for, really. Ooh, gee whiz. <laughs> the main spar is the backbone to the aircraft. It carries all the weight, it connects all the engines through the wings, and comes through the fuselage. Everything weighty hangs off the main spar, really. Yep. Just over the top of the main spar, you've got the wireless operator's position. That looks out over both wings and above his head is the Astrodome. So the wireless operator has 1154 and 1155 transmitter and receiver. It's got a small desk just on the left hand side of the aircraft. It would also have something called Fish Pond which is the fighter detection. It runs off the, uh, the H2S radar as well. So that basically tells them if there's anything coming towards them quickly and then from that they would expect it to be a fighter. And the Astrodome they'd use for what, taking star uh, Yep. Telling your position from the stars, basically taking taking star, star shots. Amazing. The majority of navigation on a Lancaster is just dead reckoning, so mm -hmm. certain bearing for a certain length of time, change to another bearing. Um, just after the wireless operator, we have the navigator. So the navigator's got a large map table. Uh, on a Mark 7, he's also got G and H2S. Uh, G is basically uh, a navigational device that has uh, a master and two slave aerials in Britain giving out radio waves, pulses, which would converge over the target. The problems they had with G 
was that because of the curvature of the Earth, the further you travel away from the aerials in Britain, the harder it is to get a signal, because radio waves always travel in a straight line. Okay. We've also, on the navigator's desk, we've got the air positional indicator and the ground positional indicators. He's got a desk lamp so he can see what he's doing in pitch black. Uh, for that reason, he had a curtain that came around his position, basically to stop the light from escaping and showing the aircraft up. Behind the navigator, we've got the drift sight, so they could drop a flare and measure the wind drift on the flare, which is obviously the, the wind drift on the aircraft as well, so he can adjust his, his measurements and calculations. Just next to the navigator, just forward of him, we have the flight engineer's position. So the first thing you come to is a flight engineer's panel. He's got his oil pressures, oil temperatures, radiator temperatures, fuel tanks, fuel boost pump, fuel crossover cocks. This is the main engine management system, if you like. Yep. So the flight engineer's main job is management of the engines, management of the fuel. The flight engineer has a small seat that folds up just next to the pilot. And on our left-hand side, we have the pilot seat. This is the only part in the aircraft where you can actually stand up. <laughs> just about, yes, yeah. All the canopy here is perspex, bar two, two panels, which are glass. The two glass panels are clear view panels because no, no matter how good you get perspex, it will always distort the image to a certain degree. Okay. There's only so, a si one single pilot seat. That's it. You can sit up in the seat if you like. Okay. Oh. So the pilot is the only person that has his parachute on him all the time. The rest of the crew stow theirs not far from their position. Behind his head he's got a piece of armour plating that also runs down his back. That's just about the only piece within the fuselage but there is some underneath the engine they sell as well. So flying control wise you've got the controls in front of your chest. That obviously operates the elevators, ailerons and then your feet go onto the rudder bar which controls the rudders. Yep. You've got trim just down by your right hand side. You've also got the flaps just in front of that and the undercarriage just behind it. Down by your left hand side you've got your seat adjustment and your bomb doors. By your right knee you've got your throttle quadrant, your outboard engines and inboard engines. Underneath that you've got your pitch change for your propeller blades. And either side of the throttle quadrant you've got your fuel tank master cocks, so that turns the fuel on for each engine. Above that RPM gauges and boost gauges. Above those you've got your mag switches. And just to the right of those, you've got your engine starting switches. In front of your control column, you've got your blind flying panel. So that's a standard blind flying panel for Lancaster, Hurricane, Spitfire, Dakota, anything of that kind of era, really. So top right, you've got your rate of climb and descent. Bottom right, you've got your rate of side slip. Top centre, you've got your artificial horizon. And below that, you've got a course setting compass. Top left, you've got your airspeed and knots. And bottom left, you've got your altimeter. So there's three compasses on the aircraft. You've got a magnetic compass by your left knee, yep. course setting compass in the blind flying panel, and then your master compass, which runs off the master compass and gyroscope just inside the back door. Should we wander down to the bomb, bomb aimer's position? Yep, the bomb aimer's is the very front of the aircraft. When you step down into the bomb aimer's, you're stepping off the top of the, uh, the bomb bay, basically. So the bomb bay extends all the way up to the pilot's position, yeah? It's it a yeah. huge bomb bay, isn't it? So the bomb aimer was also the front gunner. Yeah. He did the both positions, if you like. So as a bomb aimer, he would lay down, laying forwards, elbows on the leather cushion. By his right hands, all the small bomb selection switches to select which bombs to release. Underneath that, he's got the timing sequencing. 
and by his left hip he's got um, sorry yeah by his left hip he's got the bomb computer into that you'd put maximum velocity of bombs your height wind speeds and that would change the crosshair on the bomb site just after that you've got the grey camera on the floor for taking a photo over the target so above the bomb aimer's back and above his head you've got the front turret front turret is very seldom used really it's an extremely tight position in the front turret you've got two uh, 303's as I say very seldom used never really got a frontal attack so they were better off really laying down in the bomb aimers finding spires, churches, yeah. rivers, lakes and relaying it back to the uh, navigator so ironically the navigator is the only one that can't see out of the aircraft you can only, well, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be flying at uh, whatever it was minus whatever degrees centigrade in, in yeah all, most of the bombing raids were done at night, weren't they? That's it, yeah, until later on in the war when we had um, air superiority, really. Yeah. Um, majority of the bombing raids were at night, so it was pitch black. Um, really, you wanted it pitch black, a little bit of cloud, not a lot of moon, yeah. um, so you can fly undetected a bit easier. When I had the chance in the cockpit, I asked Andrew about the future of Just Jane. Uh, how they go about sourcing parts and who does all of the uh, essential maintenance on the aircraft. We've recently got a few spares for the aircraft with the thought of possibly getting it airworthy. So we, we've managed to get hold of nine propeller blades, um, three aircraft's worth of undercarriage. We're just getting a, a turret come from Chino in America uh, to put in our space where we have for the turret. Um, we've got some, some spare wheels, um, three airworthy Merlins we've managed to get hold of now. Um, so we, we've bought old Merlins and had them overhauled to uh, airworthy condition. Is the aircraft actually in air, airworthy condition? Would it fly, even though it's not got a certification? Yeah, if you were to, to take it out and try and take off with it, I'm sure you'd at least get a circuit out of it. Yeah. So. There's just no assurance, I guess, is, is the best way of putting it. Um, nothing, nothing's been signed off to say <laughs> it's airworthy. So with the aircraft having been taken apart and put back together again three or so times in order to transport it by road, yep. you can't be sure that absolutely every bolt has been put in and tightened up. Have you ever oh. thought about bringing it back to... It's something that we're looking at, Super getting expensive. it airworthy, yeah. Yeah, it'd be about three to four million pounds to do it in about 18 months. Um, we've got a team that can do it. We've, we've sourced the people, shall we say. Um, we're sourcing the parts. Uh, if we were to do it, we basically want the parts on the shelf so we don't have to stop and look for something halfway through. There's only, there's only two others airworthy in the world, aren't there? That's right. There's three with engines running. So this one taxis. Battle Britain Memorial flight at Coningsby, that one flies, and there's one in Canada that flies as well. It's a beautiful aircraft, isn't it? Everything seems to be in the right place with it. Yeah. Certainly, if you're taxiing or flying it, everything's at hand. You don't really have to stretch very far for anything. And it just seems to look right. Like the Spitfire looks right, I think yeah. the Lancaster looks exactly, right. Exactly, well. exactly. It looks very menacing in black as well, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. And the, the future of the museum, how, how do you see that going? Well, it's always expanding. Um, we're always going along the line of, of Bomber Command and, and wartime airfield. So everything that we do is we try to do it to a, a wartime specification, if you like. We've just put four Nissan huts up, um, look as they would do during the war. We're setting up a, a billet for aircrew, so you're going to walk through it and it'll be just like an aircrew billet. And we're also setting up a wartime briefing room as well. The crews would go into a briefing before the operation. So we're setting it up like that. So we're trying to put a lot of things back to how they would have been during the war, so it is very much like stepping onto a wartime airfield. Okay. Is there a chance you might get more aircraft, or are they relatively few and far between nowadays? 
we're, we're always looking for aircraft. Um, we're very keen to to get aircraft that fit with the museum. Yep. We would never bring jets here or anything to it's bore the atmosphere of the, the wartime museum. Um, so I mean, we would look at mosquitoes, and obviously mm -hmm. we've got a Dakota here at the moment. So we're, we're always looking along the right vein of, of aircraft to get. Yeah, great stuff. Andrew Panton there. A big thanks to Andrew for taking the time out of his uh, busy schedule to have a chat with me today. One of the other aircraft on the site, as you have heard, is the Dakota. And its owner, Paddy Green, was at the museum today to uh, watch it on one of its taxi rides. Well, you heard the Merlin, so now have a listen to uh, the entirely different sound of the Dakota's twin Wasp engines spluttering into life. And then we'll hear from Paddy talking about his beloved aircraft. Paddy, uh, you own uh, the Dakota here at uh, Lynx Aviation Heritage Centre. How did you actually come by the aircraft? Uh, this aircraft we found in Arizona uh, about seven years ago, and it had been operating commercially out of Memphis, Tennessee, on uh, general commercial freight, what's known nowadays as a freight dog. Uh, and she'd been running uh, automotive parts and uh, uh, sort of chickens and you name it, the sort of stuff that you chuck in the back of the DC-3. Yeah. Uh, then it had been bought by a FedEx pilot to form part of his private collection. And uh, he had a, a Harvard and a Beach 18. And I think really the DC-3 was a plane too far. And his wife said, well, either it's the DC-3 or me. And perhaps unwisely, he decided to <laughs> get the DC-3. Yeah. Uh, so we found it and uh, we got it ready for the return trip to the UK and it took about a year for the aircraft to be put in a condition where it would happily fly across from America and then we brought it across in uh, May of 2006, no I tell a lie, 2005. Uh, how did you get it here? We, we flew from Arizona to Montana which uh, is in the no northern state then across into Canada across the Hudson Bay to Iqaluit, which is in Baffin Island, then to Greenland, then to Iceland, then to Wick in Scotland, and then to, at that stage, Liverpool, which was where the aircraft was based when I first bought it. Were you actually flying yourself, or did you uh, employ someone to uh, pilot it for you? No, we'd have made about the first five miles, I think, if I'd flown it. Uh, after that, it was flown, flown by people who know what they're doing. Um, the, the captain, a fellow called John Pappas, is probably one of the most experienced DC-3 pilots in America. He's a, he lives in uh, California. And uh, my co-pilot was uh, my current engineer, Mark Edwards of uh, AirVenture. And co-piloting him was a French engineer. So we had a crew of three, and I sat uh, in the back, normally freezing to death, because, believe me, it is very cold up there. Uh, particularly as there's no heating in the, the rear cabin, the cargo area. The pilots are OK. They got plenty of uh, good warm air up front, but uh, it was it was cold where I was, let me tell you. Damn chilly. What an adventure that must have been, eh? 
Yes, that's a sort of once-in-a-lifetime thing, isn't it? It took about 35 flying hours, and uh, the old girl uh, flew absolutely beautifully. We really had very few, very few occasions when I thought we uh, might not make it. Um, we did have a, a pretty uh, ropey takeoff out of uh, Churchill, which is in, uh, in the Northern Territories, uh, and uh, we'd about 12 45-gallon drums of fuel on board. Uh, because, of course, getting Avgas in that part of the world is getting very difficult nowadays. Yeah. Uh, they just only have uh, Jet A1 up there now. Uh, so uh, that was great fun. I thought if we uh, managed to crash on takeoff with all this fuel on board, we would all <laughs> be around for very long. But no, she crawled into the air, and uh, we managed to get onto the next stage. And other than that, it was it was uneventful. It was exciting, but it was uneventful. Uh, why particularly a Dakota? Had had it been like a, a boyhood dream to own one? Yeah, absolutely. I was born in 47 and uh, was plain mad. Grew up in the town of Harrogate in Yorkshire. And uh, I used to persuade my dad to drive me across to uh, what was then Eden Aerodrome. It's Leeds Bradford International now. But uh, he used to take me across there on a Sunday afternoon and I used to sit there with binoculars watching the planes coming and going. And the only thing of any size was a DC-3, a Dakota. And they were owned either by Aer Lingus in those days or by a long-vanished airline called BKS Air Transport. They used to have a base out of Liverpool in those days, uh, and Newcastle as well, actually. But uh, So that was it. That started a love affair with the DC-3, and uh, it's continued the rest of my life. Now, I noticed from... Uh, there's a plaque in the, uh, in the fuselage on the wall there. It has a very illustrious career, doesn't it, this particular aircraft? Yes. I thought if I'm going to buy a DC-3, I want one that has history and if possible, authenticated history. And this particular one uh, was built in December 43 and came to the UK for the European Theatre of Operations in February 44. Uh, and uh, she then served not only in the US AAF, but then in the Royal Air Force. Uh, and she went to the Royal Air Force in September 44. And then after that, she led, then went to the Royal Canadian Air Force so she's very much a military aircraft and uh, had a had a good war, had a, an interesting war. What is the uh, the nickname on the on the nose? What does that uh, refer to? Dragamoot. Dragamoot. Yes, the first uh, captain, the first pilot of this aircraft, uh, had a Scottish grandmother, and he uh, used to fly this aircraft on what was called a snatch recovery glider. Uh, or glider tug. Um, it's an, it was an extraordinary thing. What happened was uh, the top brass uh, decided that it was ridiculous having all these reusable uh, assault gliders left on the ground in uh, Normandy. They wanted to bring them back if they could. And the Yanks had actually come up with this idea of being able to snatch these things from the ground. Uh, you needed to have a big arrestor hook at the back of the aircraft, uh, a big winch at the front of the aircraft, and uh, you used to uh, put up a, essentially a pair, pair of gelp posts, uh, put a bungee, bungee rope on the front of the assault glider. The Dakota flies in about 90 or 100 knots, uh, picks up with using the arrestor hook the front of the bungee rope, uh, and then literally yanks the glider into the air. And I think the acceleration from <laughs> uh, to 90 was uh, quicker than a Ferrari. It, how, the wings, how the wings didn't fall off, uh, either the DC-3 or the, uh, the glider, I don't know. But that's how they brought them back. And there were very, very few fitted with this uh, recovery gear. 
I would imagine very few survived doing that as well. Um, <laughs> you have to be a hell of a pilot. I, I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, I, I have met the pilot in question uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, he's 80, he must be 88 now. And uh, he used to tell me all about it and has given me since his uh, top secret records of the day of, uh, oh. of being sent out to uh, a place in Normandy to recover gliders. So, yeah, it's uh, Brilliant. it's a unusual thing. It hasn't been done since the war, really. Superb. Uh, the aircraft is actually kept here at uh, East Kirkby, uh, and it's used for the taxi rides, isn't it, uh, alongside the Lancaster. Uh, is it still airworthy, in airworthy condition? Oh, absolutely, yes. We're having a year off. It's uh, uh, This year we're going to just do taxiing, but uh, we fly 60, 70 hours a year normally, uh, in the main, we're dropping parachutists uh, in Normandy, Arnhem, and uh, elsewhere. We've been as far afield as uh, northern Italy, dropping parachutists, and in Switzerland. Uh, I'm just having a year off because, quite frankly, it's it's a hell of a dint in the pocket. This, uh, you know, you're flying it privately for pleasure, and uh, you get uh, some recovery of costs on dropping parachutists, but. Uh, quite frankly, at uh, 350 litres an hour of fuel being guzzled, <laughs> at, uh, what is it, I think about one one pound sixty a litre now. Gee, uh, you, you know, you can uh, uh, just, you can you can actually hear the money being sucked through the engines. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't go flying every year and have other toys to play with as well, so I thought we'd have a, we'd have a year off. And hopefully fly again in 2012, that's the plan. Okay, it's actually still on an NREG, isn't it, in this country? Yes, uh, by design, this it's it's much more efficient and effective to operate these uh, old aircraft uh, on an N reg rather than transferring it to a G reg. So yes, whilst ever we can do, we'll continue to operate as an N reg. Yes, uh, is it maintained by uh, the museum? No, it's uh, maintained. They look after it, and uh, they are very good custodians of it. But it's maintained by my. Uh, original engineer Mark Edwards, who flew back, who found the aircraft, restored it, and then flew it back with me. Uh, so he does all the maintenance. He's a he's a top class engineer. Oh, it's a lovely sound. What engines are they in there? Uh, these are the uh, world famous Pratt and Whitney Twin Wasps. They are the biggest uh, produced radial engine of all time. They've produced 186,000 of them, and they powered not only the uh, DC-3, I keep calling it a DC-3, of course, correctly, I should call it a C-47, yeah. but they powered C-47s, Liberators, Catalinas, and uh, it's a 28-litre engine, 14 cylinders, and 1,200 horsepower, hence your 350 litres an hour. Yes. Uh, it does sound very nice, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> it should do, <laughs> Yes, I think other than, I mean, I'm biased, but whilst I I think a Merlin is spectacular, to me there's nothing quite like a couple of uh, Pratt & Whitney's under takeoff power. It's uh, one hell of a noise. And, of course, I say it uh, does the taxi rides down here at uh, East Kirkby. People can actually come down and pay for a ride in the uh, in the old girl, can't they? They can, yes. It's, uh, it's great fun because, of course, you do actually get the the atmosphere of uh, being in an aircraft that is actually moving uh, and moving under its own uh, and its own steam 
and do you do it uh, exactly the same of course with the Lancaster yep. it's uh, it, you can smell it you can you can sense the engines and uh, when he runs it up to take off power uh, it's terrific it, uh, of course it'd be even more terrific if it then took off but not this year okay well thank you very much you're doing a great job keeping uh, the old aircraft flying well done thank you very much indeed and thank you very much for your interest in it no problem thank you cheers Paddy you can see a few photos of uh, Paddy's Dakota and even a, a short video of the aircraft taxiing on the Flying Podcast website. And that, as I'm sure you'll know, is at www.flyingpodcast.co.uk. Also on the website, you can find more info on Link's Aviation Heritage Centre. It's a great day out, and if you're lucky enough to be able to take a taxi ride in either the uh, Lank or the Dakota, I'm really sure you'll enjoy it. It's a very uh, evocative experience, especially in the Lancaster uh, it's one of the few ways that you can get any sort of uh, experience that comes even part way towards giving you an idea of what it must have been like to uh, fly a bomber during World War Two. So, like I say, if you can, get down to East Kirkby uh, and spend the day here. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on Twitter or Facebook, and you can help support the podcast by visiting the Flying Podcast website, click on a few links, or uh, buy something from Amazon. Well, that's it for episode 42 of Flying Podcast. If you have any comments, suggestions for future episodes, or if you'd like to take part, you can email me, as usual, on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon.